0: to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth, John Vecchioni, and Janine Yunus with you today. And uh, always like to start the episode with a victory when we have one. And and courtesy of Janine's good work uh, out in California, uh, we can report that uh, Governor Newsom has repealed AB 2098, which was the law uh, that uh, California had passed around this time last year that uh, had threatened to Yank doctor's licenses or otherwise penalize them for saying things that were not in keeping with the, quote unquote, contemporary scientific consensus uh, around COVID-19. Congratulations, Janine. Oh, thank you. (laughs) So, so how did this come about?
1: Well, um, we had a successful preliminary injunction motion in January of this year. Uh, the judge actually granted our request and preliminary enjoin- preliminarily enjoined the law, uh, at least as to our clients and uh, another group of plaintiffs. The only court um, victory
0: to date, I believe, yeah, against the that's law. That's
1: right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we had just filed a summary judgment motion um, on last Friday, so that I don't remember the exact date, about the 29th. Uh, and on the second, I believe, Newsom signed the, uh, you know, signed the repeal, so, which is set to take effect in, in January. So I suspect that the, they were not looking forward to suffering more court losses. And that was uh, motivation for repealing the law.
0: Fantastic. Well, is this, uh, you know, is this good and gone now? I mean, are we, are doctors safe to speak their minds again in California?
1: Well, that's a good question. <laughs> I think it's better. Uh, you know, this law was really uh, had a, had an extreme chilling effect and caused doctors to really be afraid of saying anything that went against the uh, sort of the state's position on COVID, the CDC and the California Medical Board um, on COVID-related topics. On the other hand, uh, there is a, right now another doctor I've heard of who's being disciplined for saying to a patient that masks don't work and that she thought ivermectin does work, which is just sort of this, this was just just the speech at issue here. Uh, And they're just using existing um, standards to try to discipline her. i suspect that they will face a First Amendment challenge on (laughs) that, and they're not going to get away with it. But it's clear that the state is still trying to use, um, to use its authority to persecute doctors who,
2: can i can i raise an issue here i this case is fascinating for a reason that i don't think we've really discussed because it's never come up in the papers or anything but all during the COVID emergency they would extend emergency rulings and say oh well the legislature can't be trusted to do this that or the other thing and in this case the legislature passed a new law on what doctors could say about a new disease right so here's a new disease um uh, there's there's uh, a lot of unknowns and they decided they knew what doctors could tell people and not tell people regardless of what their personal circumstances were um that thing got passed pretty darn quickly yeah during the covid era then uh you bring this this case they we get a preliminary injunction they kind of see which way the wind is blowing and what happens covid kind of goes away even in california right and they decide oh well we don't want to suffer a lot we're going to repeal it and it gets repealed and then i think he signed it did newsom sign this on a sunday
1: yes okay so he signed it on a sunday so he didn't
2: so he doesn't want to exactly uh he he obviously didn't have a big signing ceremony right (laughs) exactly but but what you see is is that sign it
0: on a sunday please
2: this is not a case where there was an inter, you know that the the uh, politics changed uh, the parties changed in the interim. It's always been uh, uh, overwhelmingly Democratic state, overwhelmingly Democratic legislatures. But they did a 180 de- degree turn and changed the law twice, first to make this uh, illegal, unconstitutionally, and then to say, no, it's perfectly fine. So what I think that this whole uh, story is, is that this argument that the legislature and the governors can't respond quickly to these emergencies to pass legislation to address things rather than by executive order is kind of blown up by this whole pattern
0: by this bad legislation yes bad. <laughs> yes
1: <laughs> okay oh, <that's> my theory
0: <laughs> well they did they did act very quickly i know mean, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that uh yeah when they don't like something they it seems like the legislature and the governor can can act can act quickly uh they're, they're not as good about doing things that uh, that, that might increase freedom or that they might, uh, they might be responsible for or might be held responsible in public for, uh, for things. They, they're much happier to crack down on, on people's freedom in these situations. Uh, unfortunately, they seem to be at least quicker to do that. Uh, but uh, so, so Jeannie, you explained there was, a, there was a preliminary injunction. You've now filed for uh, a, a, a summary judgment. Uh, but the law is still in effect, right? Because this repeal doesn't go into effect until until January first. That's
1: right. Yeah, the law is in effect till January, so um, we uh, you know we can argue that the case isn't moot because there are at least a few more months that the law is technically in effect. And there's also another case in the Ninth Circuit. They lost in the district court um, and went up to the Ninth Circuit. And the Ninth Circuit heard the case in July and hasn't issued a decision yet. But they appeared to be favorably inclined to the plaintiff's arguments, so they may. Um, Issue a decision before January. I would certainly argue, if I were the plaintiffs in that case, that it's not moot. Um, because in fact, they have, have to, argued that. At least yeah. the, the press release they put oh, out argued, okay. that they, <laughs>
0: argued that the case wasn't moot. I saw that.
1: Yeah, uh, and, and
0: that's the Liberty Justice Center out of out of Chicago. which should right. Give them some uh, give them some credit uh, for. In fact, their case they filed their case before. We filed our case. They weren't successful, as, as Janine said, uh, but then they are pursuing that on appeal in the Ninth Circuit.
1: Yeah. So I guess it will depend whether the Ninth Circuit wants to address this or doesn't want to address this or whether they've already partially written the decision and don't want it to go to waste.
0: <laughs> right. But in any event, we would ex- if they're going to issue a decision, we would expect it before January 1st, I assume.
1: Yeah, I would think so. Well, then they heard the case in July so that they should have had enough time, I would think. Well, <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> the Ninth Circuit does move slowly sometimes. But yes, I would think that that would be enough uh, enough time. Well, uh, you know, one thing I want to say is congratulations to our clients. I mean, these—it uh, it wasn't easy when this case was was filed uh, last November for Dr. Tracy Hogue, Dr. Ram Durrasetti, Dr. Aaron Cariotti, Dr. Pete Mazaluski, and Dr. Azadeh Katibi to stand up in the face of what really I would describe as overwhelming sentiment on the part of the medical community in California. That was bearing down and and the Medical Board of California itself was in favor of of empowering itself to go after the doctors uh, in the state. And it, it, I mean, you've you've talked to the clients um, more often and more directly than I have, Janine, but uh, it, it took a lot of bravery for them to stand up to this.
1: It did. And one thing uh, we haven't talked about is that they were really uh, most of them were active on Twitter. And they a lot of the people who were pushing this law and ultimately were responsible for getting it passed. We're you know, threatening them on Twitter saying, we can't wait for AB 2098 to get passed so we can yank your licenses. And when, you know, Dr. Hogue had, for instance, punished, uh, sorry, published a study <laughs> about how uh, the risks of vaccination for certain groups like young men in their 20s outweighed the benefits. And so uh, they might want to think twice and she wouldn't recommend it for young men. And because it was of, very, because of the myocarditis. myocarditis heart yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, And this was a real study she'd done with, you know, she's a, she has a PhD in epidemiology and she's also an MD as she had done it with other doctors. And this is sort of part of a mentality, a censorious mentality, I think that.
2: A mob mentality. <laughs> exactly. Even, yeah. They
1: were going after her. This was, and this was just one example. Most of the doctors in the case had faced similar uh, circumstances, they were going after her and really trying to scare her, and and basically made it clear that they were going to get this law passed. They were going to do everything they could to get this law passed to shut her up. So it was this is really an example of people using the power of the state in order to silence dissent, which is exactly what the First Amendment is supposed to protect. So.
0: <laughs> well, and 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 congratulations to Judge Shubb for. I mean, he acted very quickly back in January after after the oral argument. Two days, case. and here
1: yeah. it was like a 50-page decision. <laughs> so yeah. He did it, and he was—I uh, was very impressed by Judge Shubb. I thought he was the best judge I've ever appeared in front of, and I've appeared in front of a number. He was just extremely uh, knew what he was talking about. He was very polite um, and very thoughtful and thorough wrote a very good decision yeah and and i
0: heard you uh on the radio this week at wmal in in dc uh about this and and uh they they said well where's the aclu and you were quick to say well actually <laughs> they filed in support of both yeah. our case and and LJC's they case. they did
1: yeah the ACLU has been a little derelict during the pandemic for the most part, but they did rise to the occasion here. So even they thought this law
0: was <laughs> too creature. That's right. If you were wondering how bad this is, so so Governor Newsom bravely backed down when the ACLU was uh, <laughs> on the other side of uh, okay, well, uh, and and then maybe it's worth worth saying that uh, there are uh, there are press accounts suggesting. That Governor Newsom may not have had the most wholesome of of intent in in repealing this; that it may have more to do with future presidential aspirations on his part than than seeing the light about the the wisdom of the law.
2: He's been extremely moderate lately. <laughs> yeah. He's been striking down things left and right, and mostly thing, left. Yeah, exactly. It's very un, it's, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. I wonder. Uh, I wonder what he's up to.
0: Yeah, there's it's it's <laughs> the, the voters provide a certain discipline and. You know, it, one of the things that's unusual about this case for NCLA is this was a law that was passed by a state legislature and signed by a governor. That's not usually something that we jump in against. We're right. we're much more interested in administrative power and and stopping uh, administrative power. But in this in this instance, we thought that the that the uh, what was going to happen in California was severe enough that we wanted uh, that we wanted to jump in and and try to stop it and and we're able uh, able to do that uh, successfully because of. The willingness of our clients uh, to to stand up, and because of of uh, Janine's uh, excellent lawyering, and uh, and we should put in a, a word for our colleague Greg Dolan,
2: uh, uh, as uh, uh, who was involved a little bit in this as well. Yeah. So and, and you know the other um, the other thing about it is it was going to be enforced through administrative agencies. So
1: yeah, that's true.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well,
0: Janine, Congratulations on on the repeal of AB 2098. And congratulations to, uh, to our clients. And, and I'll even say congratulations to uh, Governor Newsom. May he have more good ideas like this uh, on the repeal side of things in the future.
2: Well, Mark, I'm happy to report uh, that we've just gotten notice uh, about 12 hours ago that the Supreme Court has distributed all the briefs in the Relentless matter, um, including our reply brief,
0: uh, distributed to the justices. To the
2: justices, right? So you you get 40 copies and they go to everybody on Earth, and um, and this is the case, just like Loper Bright, where our clients um, who are who are uh, Fishermen up in um, and out of uh, New Hampshire, uh, Rhode Island, excuse me, um, have to have pay for the monitors to go on their boat. So it's like low bright. But there are some differences. And uh, the First Circuit came out against us uh, and said that the that it was perfectly fine for this to happen. And so we petitioned for the Supreme Court and the government came back and they said, well, OK. It should be held for Loper Bright. It shouldn't be dismissed, and but you shouldn't grant Sir Shirari because you'll figure everything out in the Loper Bright case. And since that's going to happen, you don't really have to deal with these
0: people. And it would be hard not to at least say that much because it, it is the same law and a very similar factual oh, pattern.
2: Correct. It, the same. The same as far as the monitors go. Uh, we just fish a little. We fish differently, and so it's it's actually more onerous to us in a lot of ways. But um, what I liked about the reply brief and when I. Uh, think that uh, we've done here, uh, which I think is important for both the clients and the law, is we had a second question. And the second question they said is um, not certworthy, and this is a bad vehicle for it, basically. And the second question is uh, whether the phrase necessary and appropriate in the Magnuson-Stevenson Act, MSA, augments agency power to force domestic fishing vessels to contract with and pay the salaries of the federal observers they must carry. Because the Chevron aspect of this is that, okay, they made a, a regulation and they're allowed to, we, we, if it's ambiguous, we have to defer to the agency's understanding of its own power under the regulation. But there's a separate thing that's happened in the MSA all over the country, and that's this the overarching language of the MSA says that the agency is allowed to make all laws necessary and appropriate to carry out its purposes. And this is very common in statutory construction. It's very common in administrative law to see this. And the real question is that the circuits are now split on Mark. And I think it's very clear. And I tried to lay it out as best we could in the, in both the opening and in the response. And we, and we got, uh, Southeastern Legal certainly uh, uh, came in and, um, and put in an amicus brief exactly on this, that it's, um, that it's a big difference now um, between what necessary and appropriate means in places like the Fifth and the First Circuits. Because the First Circuit seems to mean necessary and appropriate means you don't need statutory language for any power. It's just you can do – it it's like a runaway train of powers. Well, was,
0: and, and you don't need it uh, further congressional action for funding. Right. Essentially, you can fund it yourself by charging
2: industry for it. That's correct, and that's necessary and appropriate. Why? Because the administrative agency said it's necessary and appropriate, and Congress said ah, they're the judges of that. So it's really a huge, huge expansion of regulatory power. And, um, and I, I think um, one of the um, examples – we give in the reply brief um, and uh, it, it, and I have to uh, Carol Rollins came up with it it wasn't my my uh, but I think it's very true um, I had put in that Puerto Rico is is in the Gulf of Mexico but it is it is now if you're a Puerto Rican fisherman the first circuit has control of Puerto Rico and so the First Circuit is New England, most of New England, plus Puerto Rico for some odd reason. And um, so if you're there, you you regulation comes out, and the First Circuit says, ah, whatever they want is necessary and appropriate. But if you're in an island, you know, hundreds of miles over in either Texas or Louisiana, and you're the same fisherman. Uh, I said, well, you know, you're, you you don't have to. You're necessary and appropriate it means they have to show that it's both necessary and appropriate. And they take into account the cost of the regulation and all this other stuff. And Carrie said, well, wait a minute. What about these fish that, that migrate and <laughs> like a tuna? So, so if you, so she, she, we tracked the fish going through the circuits, <laughs> and, and what happens if you're a tuna fisherman chasing the tuna, and the tuna, it's necessary and appropriate for whatever the Noah wants you to do when you're over here with your tuna, and it's completely not necessary and appropriate if you're in the Gulf of Mexico.
0: So, which place is it better to be if you're the fish? That's, the, <laughs> that's my question. That, that's
2: probably. That's probably. Well, I, there is a case. There is a case out of the First Circuit where they struck down a, um, a regulation that had prohibited um, hunting the tuna from the air. Uh, because it had I remember been, this it was helicopter yes right? helicopters, helicopters helicopters I so this. I think I think they do have that and it was because it was in appropriations it was an interesting case because the first circuit said wait a minute they put that in an appropriations clause and then they didn't put it in the next year and appropriations are yearly so if you don't renew it we're not going to do it which I think was the right decision but I was I was like wait a minute I, I the, the hunting the uh, the tuna from the air I hadn't seen it coming um in any event so We think that that this is a good vehicle because the lower court said the necessary and appropriate language was was, uh, one reason they got to do this. And the First Circuit affirmed this, quoted the same language, and uh, I – I just don't want the court to say, well, there's no Chevron deference, and then refer it and not reverse the whole darn thing and say, well, now we'll send it back to the the D.C. Circuit and the First Circuit. You guys figure it out because, as we point out in the reply brief, the First Circuit said a bunch of things that are outrageous. First of all, in the First Circuit, um, you get Chevron deference. Uh, it is presumed you get Chevron deference when there's notice and comment rulemaking. There's a presumption of Chevron deference in every ne- every um, every um, uh, notice and comment rulemaking. Well, no one else has that. That's kind of that' that's not even going to step one, step two. Oh, look, it's notice and comment. Nah. So, um, and then also the idea, the court has said that, We just presume
0: it's essentially supplanting the first step of Chevron, which is supposed to be, is there an ambiguity in the statute? And Their their first step is, has there been notice and comment rulemaking? If so, move on to step two. Right.
2: Yeah. Uh, And they're not they haven't been that blatant about it, but sure looks like that. And then the other thing is, is that um, costs, they say, we presume that all costs can be paid by industry if the agency desires it. They presume that in every statute. Uh, And I don't know if it's every statute that is necessary and appropriate or not, but it doesn't seem to be. They just think that any cost of regulation, however done, even if it's done here where it's the salary of somebody doing a government job, uh, they presume that any agency can do that. That's just an inherent agency power. And that is unbelievable. Yeah, that's a bridge too far, I think. Yeah. And so uh, we have put in here that we'd like that question taken, but- you know, most 99% of the cases uh, and questions the Supreme Court turns down. So we said, look, whatever you do, since you're taking Loper Bright, <laughs> take a look at that both sides. Everybody's cited Relentless in the Loper Bright cases. The government has, the the uh, petitioners have, everyone has. So, so it's
0: part I, of the conversation.
2: Correct. So I really hope that they take this question because I think it's going to be important. And I don't think it's just going to be important in the MSA. I think it's important in a number of um, a number of cases and in the epa michigan v epa just the word appropriate the word appropriate the the supreme court said well that that means cost you got to take costs into account and we're not going to say exactly how you have to take them in account but what we are saying if they're hugely disproportionately the cost to the regulatory benefit that is a is something the courts can judge on appropriate it's not like them substituting their judgment it's a it's a a factor you can look at so so they haven't even um they haven't even looked at that i mean they they rejected that case we cited it below and the first circuit made no mention of it and they they seem to be avoiding they didn't mention mexican gulf they didn't mention any of the fifth circuit cases even though they were all cited they said we're not even we're not even going to cite them and i think it was to make the circuit split not look as blatant as it is um and that's uh, you know maybe am i am i being a conspiracy theorist well, it's par for the
0: course for the Solicitor General's office. I mean, I think that they they often try to muddy the waters. If I can, if I can uh, keep using uh, ocean metaphors here, uh, in order to try to divert the court's attention from whether or not something is worth their attention and, and time or not. But here, I think what what I liked, uh, among other things, in the reply brief, John, as you said in there. Look, if you're gonna take this and hold it for Loper Bright anyway, and then you're gonna grant it, vacate it, and remand it to the first circuit anyway, like just don't send it back to them without some guidance about, you know, stop doing it the way you were doing it, because they're just gonna do it again. That's right? exactly right.
2: So, and and uh I, I um yeah, I don't I normally don't say that the courts are result oriented, but if if their view of the law is as stated in the relentless uh um, Appellate decision, they they don't care if it's Chevron. They don't care. They they don't care what uh, the agencies do. They're gonna say, yeah, the agencies can do that because if costs and and uh, the government's salary are just presumed to be paid by the regulated, uh, which I have never seen anywhere. And in fact, I, we point out in, in Relentless that that proposition, that citation that the First Circuit used, it's Judge Kiyata, and we were I, my. Old firm was in front of him in Gaythol. And he put that in a concurrence. He put that very proposition in concurrence that the First Circuit didn't agree with. So now, when he was writing the majority opinion, he cited his concurrence in Gaythol for that proposition. So it's like it's, he smuggled it, it in there. He smuggled it in. He's stacking uh, that proposition uh, because, you know. Uh, Kayada Jay said so in all these cases when he didn't even have the majority. So um, I do think that it's it's uh, stealing a march on how administrative law works. And if that proposition comes through, I mean, that is is almost as bad as Chevron itself, because it means that Congress has no control. Um, The agencies can always done their regulated parties and they don't have to go to Congress. So. We hope it gets taken, but in any case, we hope that the Supreme Court addresses this matter, and we'll be back in one moment, um, and we'll let you know what happens with relentless. be right back.